when I saw Amazon literally copied our product, it made me a little bit excited because I knew deep down it was going to fail and it was going to help prove how hard this space was. And many of the things that I guess I believe in building the company about authenticity and about building that relationship and especially things related to security, which have been so core to Whoop and I think so questionable for big tech companies. This is Secret Leaders from Infamous Media, the UK's startup podcast hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. We bring you personal stories and powerful insights from the world's best entrepreneurs to help you succeed. Today, I'm talking to Will Ahmed. He's the founder of Whoop, a wearable tech startup that improves your health by collecting data through an unobtrusive wristband connected to a mobile app. They're experiencing meteoric growth, raising $100 million in October 2020 on a $1.2 billion valuation. Now, their success has been down in part to getting Whoop on the wrists of everyone who's anyone in the world of sports. NBA players, pro golfers, CrossFit athletes, and even Navy SEALs. You can also find one on my wrist, so I think I can safely assume my contract with the Lakers is probably in the post. But first things first, let's go back to the early days of Whoop and find out how it all began. Over to you, Will. I was always into uh, sports and exercise and playing squash at Harvard was kind of that in an amplified way, right? You're spending three or four hours a day training and, and exercising. And I was someone who used to overtrain, so I would get fitter and fitter each season. But at some point in the season, I would kind of fall off a cliff. Figuratively speaking, your body just gets weirdly run down and you don't necessarily know why. And it's kind of the ultimate betrayal too, because you're pushing yourself so far that you go too far. It's not due to a lack of effort, it's due to too much effort. And I got interested in how I personally could prevent overtraining. Like, what does it mean to overtrain? What does it mean to train optimally? That led me to being interested in recovery and sleep. And I started reading medical papers while I was in school. By the time I graduated, I had read about 500 medical papers. And in the process, I wrote a paper myself around how to continuously understand the human body. And so I had this, this body of research that I thought was quite, quite profound. I thought if you could actually measure the things that this medical research is pointing to, you could not just understand optimal training, but you could like really change people's health and their behavior in a, in a really positive way. And I think just independent from my interest in physiology that developed while I was in school. Growing up, I was always interested in technology. And I was, you know, I had the first iPod in my, whatever it was, sixth grade class. I had the first Palm Pilot that could get on the internet, uh, which was in some ways kind of an early uh, smartphone, if you will. I broadly always believed that technology was going to go from uh, really computers we're going to go from being on your desk to being on your lap to being in your pocket to being on your body and potentially in your body so that to me just seemed really obvious like that was going to happen and the combination of believing that from a computing standpoint and then also having all this physio physiological research gave me the courage to commit to starting whoop and starting this company and then it really became a, a long process of trying to find the right people to help me build the business. 
and this goes a little bit back to this idea of manifestations, but I became so convinced that this was going to be an incredible company and I was going to find brilliant co-founders that I kept going down paths that would, would lead me to meeting the right people. And a lot of the first people that I met on that path didn't end up being the, the right people. But fortunately, by the time I graduated, I had met John Capitolupo and Aurelia Nikolai, who became the co- co-founders of Whoop and and are still with Whoop today, uh, you know, over nine years later. And John was, is, I should say, a, bu- a brilliant computer science mathematician. He had won a number of uh, awards in high school around computer science and math. And his father, as it turns out, was a professor of exercise physiology. So that's a pretty good combination. And uh, Aurelian was a, a really gifted mechanical engineer in school and someone who could rapidly prototype hardware. So we had a very complementary skill set. I had the, the vision for the company and maybe some of the business background to think about how we could get it off the ground. John had the the math, algorithms, computer science background. Nikolai had the hardware background. And so, you know, we started working together formally summer of 2012. What were your first pitches to investors? Like, what were you actually saying to them? Do you remember? And do you remember how much you were um, trying to raise? And did you get laughed out of the place multiple times? Or did it kind of connect to people that this was going to make sense back then? I remember exactly what we pitched because it's almost identical to what Whoop is today. The vision for Whoop has really been a straight line. Getting there has been a zigzag for sure. And there's been a lot of things that we did along the way that we couldn't have anticipated in those early days. But the vision for Whoop has really always been the same, which is that we're going to build this wearable platform that's going to help you improve your health. And it's going to start with the best athletes in the world and then it's gonna be on everyone. Again, this goes back to childhood things. I, I was a big fan of Nike growing up. I loved how aspirational Nike made sports, but as a consequence, exercise and health. And I always felt that health monitoring as a brand should grow up to look like Nike, not grow up to look like Microsoft. And that was one of the main reasons that I felt so strongly that we needed to have professional athletes as our first users, and they needed to eventually love the product organically. I bring all that up because it was one of the many reasons that investors were super skeptical of being successful. Targeting professional athletes is a bad market. One, because they never want to pay for anything, and two, because it's a tiny number of people. And then it's a leap of faith to go from well, you're telling me the same product that can measure the health of LeBron James is going to be able to measure everyone? That doesn't make sense, or that doesn't seem right. Or, oh, you have to understand it's the same physiology. It's just different, different people. No, that doesn't make sense, Will. And then there was also all these challenges related to the fact that we were going to build hardware. Why should we build our own hardware? Why shouldn't we just build the software to be a layer on top of different hardware so it could work with a chest strap or a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or whatever? which I thought was a horrible idea for a lot of different reasons. But these were some of the sort of default, uh, immediate knee-jerk reactions that we got from investors. Now, Whoop today has raised over $200 million. And I, I only bring that up because our last round of financing was $100 million. 
And the very first round of financing that we did was a total of $725,000. That $725,000 was so much harder, so much harder for me to raise than the $100 million we just raised. I mean that more more just to sort of offer some encouragement to people who are in those ver- very early days. Like, I think there's a feeling, I certainly had it, when you're in those early days and you can't raise a hundred grand from someone and you just feel like, gosh, like I'm not good at this. Why? I bet this wasn't a problem for Steve Jobs or whatever. You know, you're comparing yourself to these heroic entrepreneurs and there's a real mistake in that. The mistake is that, first of all, I think when they were just starting, I don't know that they knew that much more than you do on that day one. I think the key to becoming these heroic entrepreneurs is getting better yourself every day. Again, I founded Whoop, I was 21, 22 years old. A lot of my identity was tied up in Whoop. If Whoop had a good day, it was like I had a good day. If Whoop had a bad day, it was like I had a bad day. If Whoop was failing, I was failing. And I think it's really important for entrepreneurs as they grow to completely separate the success of the business and their own personal success. You can get, you can keep becoming a better leader every day, independent from what the business does and the ups and downs of the business. And it took me years to really truly understand that and internalize that. But that's what it takes to actually grow into building a business. And I think as you can do that, it also gets much easier to raise capital. It gets much easier to recruit people. A lot of positives come from it. So, uh, Back to your original question, it was incredibly hard to raise capital for Whoop in its early days. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. 
All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So coming back into the decision matrix or the decisions that you've had to make over the last nine years, how many times have you been tempted? You know, I mean, like you've, you've had your same thesis from the start to now. You've executed towards it. I know for a fact, putting words in your mouth that you put in my head in the first place from a previous blog, that the reason that you believe Whoop is the best product in the market is because you never changed your thesis, because you just stay true to making that one thing the best it could possibly be. But how many times over the journey did you lose conviction with yourself or that or consider doing other things? I think the hardest thing is when you have conviction, but it's not proven yet in the market or by feedback loops. And in a lot of ways, those are the early years of, of building something that at the time isn't obvious to people or to the market or whatever. The other thing is if you're building technology that's truly innovative, you may still be right about the end state, but the iterations to that end state still look like you're wrong because they're not quite good enough. It's what's hard about creating something completely from scratch. You know, the car analogy is if like the Tesla, this vision for the Tesla, the first version of that car, if it could only go 50 miles, which probably could go less than that, but let's just say it could only go 50 miles and there were no charge ports, people would say, this is a failed car. It's like, oh, but, 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 no, it's gonna have 400 miles and there's gonna be charges, you know, charges in every city, right? And we had a lot of versions of that with Whoop. Early versions of the hardware were too big, so did people not wanna wear it 24-7? Well, it looks like people aren't gonna wear it 24-7, Well, Well, no, 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 once it gets smaller, people wanna wear it. You know, it's, it's a lot of that. And so that's, that's where the focus has to come in because you have to stay committed to that vision. And if you deviate from it and try to appease a lot of different perspectives, you'll end up appeasing none. So that was, I think, one of the hardest things. Competition also plays an interesting role here because it's very easy for a competitor to put out a product and for you as an existing team to say, oh, because they have it, we probably should have it. I cannot tell you how many thousands of people told me that Whoop needs to measure steps. Still to this day, Whoop does not measure steps. And I view that as a positive differentiation. You have to have some conviction around these things, but I don't think steps is a relevant metric. I'm so pleasantly surprised that every wearable that comes to market seems to copy all the other wearables that measure it. But you've now just created another statistic that isn't useful that uh, is competing for an individual's attention for what is useful. Thousands of people said that Whoop needs to have a screen on it. Well, the problem with having a screen is then you're competing with watches and people won't wear two watches. And if you have a screen, then it needs to maybe have other functionality as well. It can't just tell the time. Maybe it needs to do other things. And all of a sudden the scope creep takes in. And you realize why there's so many smartwatches in the market that all kind of do the same thing. It's because you keep just talking yourself into, oh, well, it's got a screen and, and it's connected to your phone, so it may as well do push notifications. And next thing you know, you're building this thing that's got 100 different features, but it doesn't have any true compass. And I think Whoop is great at all the things that it does for all the things that it doesn't do. 
that's what kept us focused and I think has allowed us now to, to deliver a, a product and a technology to the market that is quite unique. Do you think that there's been challenges, you know, because you don't have all the bells and whistles and stuff? You want to be the Nike of wearables, but do you think that there's maybe like the concern of like the sincerity and boringness, so to speak, by being so clear with the one product and the clear focus? I guess I object a little to that framing because I, I don't think that I don't think that simple is boring. I don't think that focused is boring. And I think really the best design is the removal of stuff and the focus on on the attention at, at hand. You don't even notice the design of something when it's designed perfectly because it's so in its essence. Whoop, for example, allows you to customize it in a lot of different ways. You can swap in and out lots of different bands, colors, looks, feels. The hardware, I've said this a lot, like I believe that wearable technology should either be cool or invisible. And we just want to play on those two axes, nothing else. You'll notice a lot of wearable technology somewhere in the middle. It's not aesthetically all that good looking and it's certainly not invisible, i.e. the ugly smartwatch, right? But if you just operate on these two paradigms, that leads you down interesting design questions. And the hardest, by the way, is invisible. How do you make a sensor completely disappear on your body but still deliver all that magic? To me, that's not boring. That's brilliant. That's an incredible simplification of so many complicated problems, is to make this technology actually be able to disappear. How do you get megastars and athletes like LeBron James to use your brand new product? Will takes us through his method and also tells us what it's like when Amazon decides to copy your product. All that after this quick break. Of the six UK unicorns who have exited, can you guess what they all have in common? They've all been advised by our latest partner Deloitte, and there's good reason for that. I know the joy and pain that comes with scaling a company fast. You need to focus on growth, your team and customers, but often your attention is taken away by must-dos in areas like finance and compliance. I'm talking about headaches, like making sure you're charging VAT correctly on a new product, or your intellectual property is watertight, or having the right corporate structure for international expansion. These are complicated areas that you're really not trying to innovate in. So you need a partner like Deloitte who knows them inside out so you don't screw them up and you get more time and increase your chances of success. So whether you're an early stage startup or an international scale up, check out Deloitte's high growth team to help find the right answers faster. Search Deloitte Private to find out more. So go on then. How do you pierce the inner circles of the mega famous? The secret to getting to anyone famous or noteworthy is getting to someone in that person's life who's really influential, who other people don't know. Everyone knows LeBron's agent. Everyone knows his coach. Everyone knows his family members. That makes those actually kind of difficult ways to get to a LeBron James. It so happened in 2014, the personal trainer was yet to be sort of a, an Instagrammed, massive following person, but rather someone who is kind of in the background. But it turned out that for many of the world's best athletes, they spent more time with their personal trainer than they did even with their wives. And so Mike Mincius was LeBron James's trainer. And it was pretty easy actually to get introduced to Mike at that time. 
and he started wearing Whoop, and he liked it. Now, mind you, at some point, the technology has to deliver. But credit to Mike, who is LeBron's longtime trainer at the time, a guy named Keenan Robinson was Michael Phelps' longtime trainer. They tried the technology and said, hey, I think this could work. I think we could use this. And then, by the way, you had the very best person also introducing it to them. It wasn't some entrepreneur off the street who these people had never met. It was their trusted trainer. That's how we got to those two athletes. And, you know, it's how we ended up working with many athletes. And credit to these trainers for having, you know, best of their generation level athletes and still being willing to innovate and test and try because I think that does show a bit of a mindset to getting to being the very best is that you don't, you don't ever stop thinking that you can find ways to improve. You've gone from starting in the early days with them, you now work with like the Navy SEALs, you work with, you're obviously doing stuff with the PGA Tour at the moment. I actually just just literally before we started our interview got your uh, email about working with CrossFit. So I'd love to know a little bit about the journey going from your first hundred of LeBron's and uh, Michael Phelps, which is already an absurd statement to be making, and how you see that through to organizations like the Navy SEALs, which uh, just from my point of view is ridiculously cool. It's a great question. Often a company's evolution, I think, goes back to some of their early founding principles, whether they defined them or not. One principle that we had was that in order to build this brand and to build this technology, we needed people to authentically love wearing it and to really get value out of it. I just believed that there was no amount of money we could pay someone to wear Whoop if they weren't getting value out of it. On the flip side, if Whoop could actually tell someone how recovered they were or how to sleep better or how to improve their life, they would want to pay for it, especially if they were a professional athlete and their livelihood depended on it. And I can't tell you how many people's first response to, oh, you've got LeBron wearing it or you've got Phelps wearing it was, oh, you should go give them a huge slug of the company or you should start paying them. And I said, you're completely missing the point. The point is that they're willing to wear this thing because it's giving them value. And we need to figure out how to do that for everyone, not just these two people. That was a very stubborn point of view, I think, but one that I think turned out to be right because it, it created this authenticity for the product. And even the partnerships that we've done, we've often looked to, was there an authentic or organic movement happening already? Because I think consumers are much savvier than they're given credit for by most brands. I think they can tell when things aren't, like don't have a core essence. And the PGA Tour was a great one. I mean, you mentioned that. You know, we had about 50% of the PGA Tour wearing Whoop before we even partnered with them. And in many cases, the way I discovered that someone on the PGA Tour was wearing Whoop was by watching golf on television. I mean, that's how organic it was. And then, you know, Nick Watney had used Whoop to realize all of a sudden he had COVID-19 and then the PGA Tour procured a thousand and put them on every player and caddy and media member. And then shortly after that, we went and did a deal with the PGA Tour to become the official wearable. But if you think about that, it was almost like all the things happened before actually becoming the partner. And I think that's a good way. That's a good mindset to have. It's a hard mindset, but again, it focuses you and it asks, it makes you ask yourself, is this a credible partner? Are consumers going to believe this? 
CrossFit, another perfect example. We literally just announced that Whoop is the official wearable of CrossFit now. But we had seen for years just how obsessed the CrossFit community was with Whoop, with being able to measure recovery. Again, many of the best CrossFitters in the world were competing and wearing Whoop. And so we just saw that strong pull from that group. And then we said, okay, this could be a great official partner and this could be a great opportunity to invest marketing dollars. So that's how we thought about it. Again, I think that authenticity, that kind of organic pull, those to me feel like super underrated brand building and marketing strategies. Yeah, it's great because you do you do come across like a good long-term thinker. You know, you mentioned zigzags already, right? You know, straight line one way, but still zigzags. So along the way, what have been some of the most challenging moments that you faced? Like, uh, you know, I other than like your standard objections, because obviously everyone gets them, when has been a moment when you thought, fuck, we're not going to make it? Well, we had a lot of near-death experiences from a cash management standpoint. We almost ran out of cash a few times. One of the more profound things that we changed that I wouldn't have anticipated needing to change was just the Whoop business model. I think when you found a company, you have to be careful how many things you're actually innovating around and how many things you're actually kind of copy from business 101. For example, most people don't decide on top of building some unique software, they need to invent a data center. And, you know, they just use Amazon Web Services or whatever, right? In our case, it didn't occur to me that we wouldn't just sell Whoop in some sort of normal way, right? I didn't think that that was going to have to be part of what made Whoop a success, but I was wrong. And uh, selling Whoop as hardware just was a really lousy business, both for Whoop and for the customer. We used to sell Whoop for $500, and you would just buy the hardware, and everything else came with it. And we started doing that to consumers in early 2017. And what we saw over the course of about a year was that Whoop had a sticky membership. So people who were buying it were generally continuing to wear it, which if you looked at other wearables, the Nike Fuel Bands, the Fitbits, the Jawbones, that had been a problem for them, retention over time. People took off the product quickly and therefore never put it back on. That wasn't our problem, but uh, we weren't selling a lot of a lot of Whoop products, and that can be a real problem because you don't have sales. And so we began to ask ourselves, is there a different business model here? At the same time, we got to watch uh, other companies grow up. Fitbit was a publicly traded company trading at one to two times revenue, which as a multiple is not great for a technology business. Peloton, on the other hand, at the time was trading at 10 to 20 times revenue. And it was because they were a subscription. And I said, gosh, we want to grow up to look like Peloton, not look like Fitbit. So just from a pure business model standpoint, we started asking ourselves, could we make Whoop a subscription? And that's ultimately what we did. And, and halfway through 2018, we launched Whoop as a, as a subscription, as a membership. And that's the business model today. And you can literally sign up for Whoop today for $30 and we send you a, a, a piece of hardware in the mail for free. And it's our responsibility to just keep you on Whoop and paying that that subscription over time. And there were a lot of benefits to this business model transition completely aside from uh, having recurring revenue. 
the most profound was, I think, just the level to which it made us even more customer obsessed. I mean, we already were customer obsessed, but it made us so much more customer obsessed. I mean, every week we're talking about how membership services, which is like our form of support, can be better and better. How can we respond to people within seconds instead of within a minute? You know, like how can we keep releasing features and new analytics and it it just pushes us to be moving at such a fast pace because we know that we're fighting for that dollar every day every week and every month and by the way if you the whoop member don't feel like we've delivered value to you this month you should cancel right and so that's the bond that you create with with a customer if you can build a true subscription business like that over the summer you announced your billion dollar valuation and I was very excited for you, thought it was awesome, but it was like almost bittersweet. Um, obviously you came out in competitive fashion immediately, but you know, Amazon suddenly launched their version of what literally looked like an absolute identical ripoff of Whoop. And you were very delicate. You were very poised. You were very considered with your words, a hundred percent, AKA good luck to Amazon. You didn't really, I think, which was very smart. You didn't really play into the whole, yes, it's a ripoff. But I was really frustrated on your behalf to know that they had done what they do, which is actually met you, you know, the, the copying you or whatever. That was like, whatever, that's Amazon. But when I read the story and I'd learned that you'd had meetings with them for investment and stuff. My question to you, without obviously putting you in hot water and going, I know you're not going to say anything that you didn't say in the article, but emotionally, How did you feel when you were having investment conversations with Amazon in the first place, knowing what they're like as a company? Did you go in with trepidation or did you go in with confidence because you want to go in and get the best deal ultimately with all your investment partners? So you treat them the same. And secondly, how did you actually feel emotionally when they brought out an identical product? Like not on the team, but you personally, emotionally. So we met with Amazon in 2017 or 18. I think their venture group was a little earlier then. And I think their reputation also was cleaner then. Because I don't remember thinking, oh, if you meet with their venture group, they are going to then take everything that you tell them and go directly to their product team. There was more of a, at least we were told, a brick wall between the venture team and, and the product teams. You should definitely have read the everything store before you walked into this meeting. Yeah. Well, look, that may have been naive, but it also came from a place of confidence in that at that point we had seen 20 companies come and fail in this space. To me, it wasn't because they had a lack of budget or resources. I mean, you go down the list, Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, I mean, these are the best sports apparel brands in the world. And then it was technology companies, Intel, Google, Start, Stop, Microsoft. I think Apple's been the most successful, right? Now you could argue that their smartwatch is doing a lot of things that don't necessarily have to do with health. So it's sort of a slightly different product. It's not necessarily a direct competitor to Whoop. We have a lot of people that wear Whoop and the Apple Watch but I think they've done a, a nice job in the space. Anyway, uh, you know, Jawbone, Fitbit, these have companies that have gone, you know, risen and then super declined. Jawbone, unfortunately, went out of business. So I wasn't at that time and certainly not today afraid of the idea that the biggest companies in the world are going to come into the market. 
And perhaps that helps explain when I tell you that when I saw Amazon literally copied our product in 2020, I was kind of excited. It made me a little bit excited because I knew deep down it was going to fail ultimately. And it was going to help prove how hard this space was. And look, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it'll be a big success. And you always have this anxiety, I think, that comes along with building a company and a paranoia that comes with building a company. And and you never want to have a trillion-dollar company copy you. But many of the things that I guess I believe in building the company about authenticity and about building that relationship with the end consumer, and especially things related to security and privacy, which have been so core to Whoop, and I think so questionable for big tech companies. I just believe that Whoop's going to emerge victorious. And so that's what got me excited about seeing it. And, you know, I, d- I didn't really want to go much into the ramifications of it in the moment, but I left it for consumers to decide for themselves. Do you want the product that's focused on you and your health, or do you want the the knockoff cheaper version from a company with skeptical practices related to your data. Join us after this quick break when Will takes us through the toughest parts of his journey and shares some really useful insights to improve your mindset. Back in a moment. I know some of you have experienced the pain of setting up and managing your business's finances. You want to be moving the needle for your company, but instead you're on the phone to your bank trying to do stuff like send a large payment which has been blocked. This is why we're so happy to be working with Revolut for business. Their business account lets you manage your company's finances and have full visibility on all outgoings. With Revolut Business, you can send and receive money in over 150 currencies at the interbank rate and even set up multiple multi-currency accounts. But what I like the most is that you can integrate with all your apps or plugins like accounting and expenses and manage your finances easily from one place so you can focus on your actual business goals. We've partnered with Revolut Business to bring you guys an exclusive two-month paid plan for free which you can't find anywhere else. Go to revolut.com slash secret leaders to claim your free two-month trial. That's revolut.com slash secret leaders. Have you ever lost your shit? Do you ever fly off the handle? You seem like a very calm person. What does your whoop say? How's your heart rate variability on stressful days? Well, I, I mean, look, I, I think I certainly take on a lot of stress. I think the key is figuring out how you can manage it. There's two ways to think about balance. Balance being the level of real recovery relative to the amount of stress that you put on your body. The common one, which is sort of pop culture stress management, is take on less stress. And that's actually not particularly useful advice for an entrepreneur. In fact, a healthy lens if you're an entrepreneur is overcome a level of stress that would break most people because that's what it's going to take. And when you embrace that as a mindset, what you gravitate then towards are habits that help you manage stress and help you recover faster. And Whoop as a tool has been very helpful for me to on this because, you know, it gets me to sleep a lot more. 
it gets me to really appreciate the benefits of my meditation practice. It's made my diet better. It certainly made me drink less alcohol. When I was a college athlete, I thought just because I had trained for three hours, I had gotten that in. It kind of didn't matter what I did after that. I could stay up late. I could party. I could do whatever. It didn't matter because I had exercised hard. Well, how stupid of a mindset is that? I think the same thing applies, unfortunately, for a lot of people in the business world. You know, I just worked my ass off nine to nine. Super successful day. Sure, I took on a lot of different stress, but I got through the day. I'm going to kick back, have a couple whiskeys. Who cares if I've got a 5 a.m. flight tomorrow? Right? It's like you need to be able to go at that level for a long time. I think the consistency is a key piece of it. I think it's it's being able to keep bouncing back. It's finding sort of a steadiness. You know, you don't want to be following that that sinusoid curve of the success of your business with your emotions. You want to be able to sort of stay flat. If today's been a great day, tomorrow may be a hard one. If today's been a hard day, tomorrow's going to be great. You know, you kind of just you create you, you sort of create some level of balance in all the all the things that you do. And look, it's it's still a huge work in progress for me. I mean, I don't want to sound at all like I've got all the answers, but that's that's the framework with which I'm trying to approach it. And I think that's at least been very helpful for me. Yeah, I totally I totally get that. That makes plenty of sense. And I guess, you know, the the riding of the wave is such a common requirement of, of staying the course on the journey, right? Marathon, not a sprint, and who better to tell us than uh, someone in the wearable space. Well, I, I do object a little to that quote. It's not a marathon. It's or it's not a sprint. It's a marathon, because it's actually both. If you truly are trying to create a a company from scratch and have it be this enormous success, you have to go at an incredibly high pace for an incredibly long time, right? Like the world's best marathoners are running four minutes, four minute miles. How many people can even run a four-minute mile? That's kind of the analogy for building a business from scratch. Like you need to figure out how you can run a four-minute mile, and then you need to learn how to do it every single day. That's truly what it is. And I, I feel like it's a discredit sometimes to tell people otherwise. But the powerful thing, the amazing thing, is that starting a business may be a lot harder than you think it is, but it's completely possible. It's not nearly as hard as what everyone else tells you in the process, which is that it's impossible. Like you can actually do it. You just have to know how hard it's going to be and to rise to that occasion. I'd love to know what you have personally struggled with the most as a CEO. I think one, one thing that I've had to work on the most is sort of a genuine appreciation for what you're building. And I do mean that pretty literally. Entrepreneurs in general are successful because they operate on these sort of dopamine wheels. You know, dopamine is one of the things that makes you happy, right? And you tell yourself, okay, when we get to this thing, there's going to be this great outcome. That's kind of what you're telling yourself in the back of your mind. And the value of telling your brain that when you get to that thing, there's going to be a big outcome is that it actually creates dopamine along the way too. It's, it's charging you to make the thing happen. If I told you, Dan, I've got the best restaurant in the world that we are going to tonight. I've got a reservation. It's the best in the world. You've never had a better restaurant experience than this. You're probably going to do what it takes to get to the restaurant. 
you know, you're going to drive through the traffic or whatever, cancel the one thing, right? Like that's the dopamine system working to drive you to get to that destination. The challenge is that when you get to that destination, you've built up some expectation for how great it is. It's very hard to rise to the occasion of being the best restaurant experience you've ever had in your life. So you're probably not going to enjoy that meal as much as you thought you were going to. A lot of the trick in being an entrepreneur is that you keep moving that goalpost and you keep telling yourself, well, this next thing is the real breakthrough. This next thing is the real breakthrough. And the reality is that the dopamine wheel is not enough to actually be happy. In fact, it's what can lead to burnout. You really need to introduce a lot more serotonin. And serotonin is that also something that makes you happy. It's that feeling of warmness and it's really what happens when you demonstrate gratitude. People, I think, and I certainly did this when I was younger, you can misinterpret gratitude as complacency. Oh, if I appreciate the stage of this company too much, then I won't be driving to the next stage. That's actually not true. They're different things. They drive towards different chemicals in your brain. And so what I've tried to get a lot better at is gratitude, appreciating the moment, appreciating the moment I'm in, while still maintaining that hard-driving mindset of how do I get to the next thing. And independent from that making you, I think, a more pleasant person to be around, it makes you live, I think, a happier life. Could not agree more. Okay, what is the toughest piece of feedback that you've ever had to deal with? Who did it come from and how did you deal with it? I mean, I feel like I've gotten so much negative feedback over the years related to the status of the business when times were hard. And that many times came from investors, but I think it probably hurt the most when it came from members of my team, because that's when I really felt like I was letting people down. Look, I, I think you know running a company can be really sad and emotionally draining, and it's hard like that. It is really hard like that. That's where it goes back to the, the importance of some of the things that we've talked about, having gratitude, having a strong vision for where you're going, because those are things that you can rely on when the moment that you feel yourself in is a pretty dark one. That's, I think, at least what's helped pull me through moments in time at Whoop, which uh, have been quite dark and challenging. When you say, you know, being in those dark moments and stuff, who, who have you had around you to get you out of that? Have you always relied on yourself? Or have there been, has there been a good social network around you? Because it is such a lonely journey for a long period of time. I know you're, you're married now, but, you know, how long have you been with your wife and was she there through the whole period or... My, my wife's been an amazing support system for me. Uh, we met when I was 23 years old, so actually pretty early on in the journey, which has been awesome as a, as a support system. I think I, I probably kept a lot of it inside, too. I mean, I, I, I know that the common advice is to go talk about it with lots of different people, but I was trying to build a narrative of positivity of how the company should look when it when it all works. You know, even talking about it not working, I felt like would undermine that narrative. Now, that's my own point of view on it. I, I think that there's psychological challenges that come with that. It's a it's a little bit more of a depressing strategy 
right? Because you're keeping more in. But it's one strategy, and it seems to have worked so far for, for me. So far, but maybe maybe time to take a few days off and just go ham on a therapist, just just so you've got it out. Do you What do you do for your mental health? Do you have a therapist? What do you do to support your mental health whilst you're on this journey? I, so much of it is... Uh is meditating. I think if you can control your thoughts and you can control your mind, you can really control a lot of the world, at least right around you in a positive way. I think I've always generally been pretty optimistic, always generally been pretty motivated. I think those are things that generally help with with mental health. I try to frame almost everything as an opportunity as well, which I think is quite helpful. So even if something bad happens or something negative happens, you think about, well, what's the opportunity in this? I remember when COVID-19 hit, we really didn't know how that was going to affect our business. And at the specific moment in time around mid-March, it wasn't actually looking very good. And I remember saying to myself, well, this is an opportunity to try to, to learn how to manage a company through a crisis. Once I framed it that way, it made me kind of excited and and energized, frankly, which, you know, if I had sort of just approached it with a slightly different mindset, I may not have. I'm not at all um, opposed to the idea of a therapist. I'm not at all opposed to the idea of having a, an executive coach. I mean, these are things I sort of look forward to one day. I just haven't brought those on in my life yet. And I, I should, you know, I should say that I've had great investors. I've had great advisors. I've had great co-founders. I've had great teammates. I've had great friends, family members who at various points have operated as a support system. What I was touching on before was this idea of if you have a doubt or you have a negative thought about your business or the execution, do you want to try to wrestle with that or do you feel this need to immediately spit it out? And I find I'm someone who's often wrestling with those ideas for a while. Awesome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on Secret Leaders, man. Thank you, Dan. I really enjoyed it. Next week on Secret Leaders. And the thing with insurance is you can't beta test this stuff. You can't just launch it and hope for the best. You go to jail for that kind of thing. I could build another business that could make another million dollars, or I could start to see that life was putting me in a corner where I should contribute something different. Maybe you can overpower your environment in the short run, but in the long run, the environment almost always wins. You want to optimize so that the good habit is the path of least resistance. Next week is our 100th episode. If you're enjoying our show and you're happy to help us, please can you get out your phone right now and rate us on your favorite podcast player because that's the stuff that actually makes a difference. Thanks so much. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.